noise in a natural biological system can actually be beneficial. What we knew from the literature is that bees have a, a distribution of threshold that trigger the fanning behavior. There's not just like one temperature value. Distribution becomes wider when there is higher genetic variability. And what we showed with the model is that actually having this variability of the, the threshold point to trigger the behavior can be really beneficial and help them create these aggregations more optimally. The reason for this is coming from the aggregation process itself. So if you can imagine one bee that is fanning, driving hot air from the hive outside. So where this bee is standing, the temperature is going to be slightly higher. And then it's going to decrease kind of gradually as you get further away from that bee. If you just had a constant threshold that triggers the fanning, then every bee would just start kind of randomly fanning. But then if there's some point a bee that has a slightly lower threshold, have a higher tendency to start fanning closer to the bee that is already fanning because of the temperature distribution there. So having the noise, having the variability in the threshold point is actually really helpful for this process of aggregation. More than the sum of its parts is practically the slogan of systems thinking. One canonical example is a beehive. Individually, a honeybee is not that clever, but together they can function like shape-shifting metamaterials or mesh networks, some of humankind's most sophisticated innovations. Emergent collective behavior is common in the insect world and not just among superstar collaborators like bees, ants, and termites. One firefly alone blinks randomly. Together, Fireflies affect an awe-inspiring synchrony in large, coordinated light shows scientists are only starting to explain. It turns out that diversity is key, even in a swarm. Variety improves the computations that these swarms perform as they adapt to their surroundings. Watch them self-organize for long enough, and you might ask, is this what people do? What hidden patterns and emergent genius do we all participate in unawares? If bees and fireflies inspire that kind of question in you, you'll find yourself at home in this week's episode. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. In this conversation, we talk to SFI external professor Orit Peleg, at the University of Colorado Boulder's Biofrontiers Institute and Computer Science Department about her research into the collective behavior of bees and fireflies. These humble insects can, together, do amazing things. And what science shows about just how they do it points to deeper insights on the nature of noise, creativity, and life in our complex world. If you value our research and communication efforts, please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash podcast give. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. Orit Peleg, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here and um, excited to talk to you today. To kick things off in the realm of the human rather than the, the realm of the insect, I'd like to invite you to talk a little bit about your path into being a scientist and, and what got you interested in it, what compelled you to pursue this professionally, You know why it is that you study these particular topics in your biography and in your passion. Let's anchor yeah. this there. I grew up in Israel and I uh, actually studied physics and computer science. I was majoring in that in high school and I didn't like it very much then. But then later on, I got really excited about astronomy. Just kept on finding myself thinking about how I'm just a tiny little creature in a vast, vast universe and how it's so difficult to perceive everything, you know, from the, the, my perspective as a small little creature. 
I think that's kind of what drove me into liking physics and wanting to study physics at the university, which I did. I didn't end up working on, on astronomy because I sort of rolled into a summer research program as an undergrad with a professor at the physics department and he was working on biological physics. So things sort of rolled out from there. I still think I kind of try to think about how things look like from the perspective of a small little creature building block in a complex system, only in biological systems, which turn out to be just beautifully and vastly rich. So that's kind of how I got into it. There's been a lot more hopping from fields and continents throughout the years. And now I'm here at Boulder and also associated with SFI. You know, it's funny. I think there are so many people who draw a very natural kind of analogy between stars in the sky and fireflies, right? Oh, yeah. In some weird sense, it's like nothing has changed. Of course, a lot has. It seems to me like actually the right place to start diving into your work is with the honeybee swarm work. And then we can go from there into the firefly work. So the first piece I'd like to discuss with you is this piece for nature physics that you led, Collective Mechanical Adaptation of Honeybee Swarms. And actually seeing you present on this at SFI, I was like one of my first really like exciting, vivid memories of sitting oh. in Cohen campus, watching you give this presentation on- Thank you the swarm behavior of bees and how they respond to someone sitting there shaking the branches of a tree. Yes. <laughs> so this is a rather beautiful and, and, and devious experiment that you set up to understand the collective behavior of swarms. Why don't you take us in and, and give us a little exposition on the thinking that led you into this particular paper and then how you and your co-authors Peters uh, Salcedo and Mahadevan went about actually doing this research? So that's definitely um, one of the most exciting projects I, I had so far. I think the vision was coming from uh, my postdoc advisor, Mahadevan, who is really good in seeing people who work on different systems and what kind of skills they have and how this can be projected to new and exciting problems. So I was working on microscopic biological active matter at the time, and he sort of saw that connection to uh, larger biological active matter. You were kind of illustrating it with your hands, but I'm guessing our listeners don't get to see that. So the structure that the bees create is a material. So the bees really connect, they're linking their bodies, they're not flying, they're actually holding each other or holding a tree branch. They do this in very large numbers. There's uh, tens of thousands of individuals who are creating this structure. And they have to deal with a lot of environmental perturbations coming from, first of all, just you know, static forces coming from gravity, but then also more dynamic ones coming from wind. And it's really just from a mechanical perspective, so amazing that they're able to maintain mechanical stability and not break. And so how do they know how to do this when the swarm is so large and an individual is so small that it can only directly coordinate with nearest neighbors and sometimes this mechanical stability actually demands the, the simultaneous collective coordination throughout the material. So that was the question in, in mind. The idea, as you already pointed out, was a little bit <laughs> crazy, I would say, is maybe one way to describe it. One approach to study these kind of systems is to just observe them in their natural habitat, kind of, you know, unperturbed. Another way tends to be really helpful is to do something to the system, to perturb it, to change something in the environment. And then from seeing how the system responds to these perturbations, maybe we can learn something interesting about its underlying principles. So that was the logical idea behind shaking a, a swarm of 10,000 stingy honeybees. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Turns out, I mean, the main the main result was that when we continue shaking the bees right and left, then bees start moving around in the swarm, and they collectively change the swarm into a more flat structure, a more flat cone. And then when we stop, they start slowly go back to their steady state configuration. We combine this also with a, a computational model that helped us isolate and point to possible rules of local behavior that the bees are following and in that case it was local mechanical forces that they are sensing between them and the bonds that they create to their neighbors 
from that point on, we just kind of extrapolated on that and, and came up with a set of local rules where they sense these forces and go up the strain gradient towards the attachment surface of the swarm to get everything to spread out. And this is all based on local rules of behavior. So only they're sensing local information about the mechanical forces responding to it, but that in turn leads to a global change in the system. Just to help people get a, a picture of this, what we're talking about is actually like in a laboratory setting, there's a plate hanging from the ceiling, yes. all the bees are hanging from the plate, the plate <laughs> is on a motor, and it's just vibrating back and forth until you get the bees to basically hunker down, except it's hunkering up, yeah. right? Yes. So as this structure changes, as bees at the tip of this column are responding to the, basically being at like the end of a swaying rope, yeah. having to climb up to a place where they're not jiggling around quite so much. I'm curious if you think that the analogy I'm about to offer is a valid analogy. You know, one of the thoughts that I have listening to you talk about this, conversations I've had and I've heard with numerous other people at SFI, one was captured in episode 29 when David Krakauer and I were talking about mass extinctions and how the depth of an ecosystem changes due to perturbations of the entire ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And comet hits the earth at the end of the Cretaceous period. There's like a limbo bar that anything larger than I think it was like five kilos or something was almost guaranteed to go extinct. Now, I wonder if you think that these same kind of mechanical properties that you're observing in swarming behavior have a fundamental relationship to the distribution of niches and metabolic functions and body size and, and all of that when you're perturbing not just a swarm of bees, but you're perturbing entire ecosystems. So I actually think a lot about what you just described. My sense is that these systems of large swarms of insects, for example, are kind of working as distributed agents. They're making decisions based in a distributed way, based on perhaps local information. So when something happens to the environment, it can be something catastrophic, you know, like shaking them or heating them up, things that makes them really uncomfortable and can potentially lead to devastating consequences, it seems like these systems of insects are really good in adapting to these unexpected and very harsh changes to the environment. So one example is what we just talked about with the mechanical forces. We've also shown more recently that the bees are able to harness and sense locally fields of airflow to uh, handle temperature and ventilation and even more recently, fields of chemical concentrations. And they somehow mastered the ability to sense these complex physical fields just locally and know how to manipulate them. I don't know if that completely answered your question, but I thought this is where you're going with this. Yeah. Well, okay. So I definitely want to get to these other papers that you just mentioned. But you know, just to clarify that question, another example might be obviously like looking at bees in the aggregate in this way has a lot in common with looking at human beings in aggregate behavior in like sociophysics models, right? Where you're, mm -hmm. you're looking at the entire riot or the, you know, what the entire marathon, or you're doing economics modeling where the individual decisions are just sort of below the level of resolution of the way that you're actually watching changes in the market. We just had Jay Dwayne Farmer on and he was talking about people who just follow the behavior of other people. And he was describing a model in which you see the entire economic system deform due to endogenous strains in the mm -hmm. same way that you, it seems that you're talking about these swarms. It's just one of these questions of like, to what extent can we derive insights from this kind of research into understanding collective human behavior and collective behavior in systems that are not composed just of one species, but of many species. All of these are fascinating problems. I always get, my brain gets a little fuzzy when I try to think about all the complexity of all the ecosystems and how sensitive it is to all these small interactions between individuals. I wouldn't go ahead and say that these are, are more resilient than, you know, uh, it's hard to compare the resiliency of, of these insect swarms to, to human group behavior, collective behavior. But I, I, my gut feeling is that also with the bees, there's probably a point where 
things can catastrophically go wrong and the system is not prepared to to handle these situations. That seems to strike at the heart of that question, which is if you shake the thing hard enough, it does not cohere, right? Like the, the swarm actually breaks apart or the bees leave. I'm just thinking about Stephanie Crabtree wrote a piece for the transmission essay series that we did last year, where she was talking about, you know, the end of the the Chaco Canyon culture as as we understand it was not like these people all died. It was that their agricultural system was so perturbed by climate change that they basically scattered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, IP Fest panelist Annalie Newitz wrote a book about this exact thing, Scatter, Adapt and Remember, about you know, human society is basically getting to the point where the social graph fragments because things are just too crazy. But, you know, rather than linger on this, <laughs> I would like to talk about this piece that you you mentioned a moment ago about collective ventilation in honeybee nests and how bees are working together to regulate the temperature inside their hive. And I think it's worth, just because this is such a juicy vocabulary word, <laughs> it's worth bringing up, as you do in this paper and, and defining for people, stigmergy. Oh, yes. Such yeah. a core concept here. <laughs> totally. So in the more classical sense, stigmergy is a process where two or more individuals are communicating through cues in the environment. So one very famous example of that is ants who lay pheromones when they are foraging for food. So each ant is depositing a little drop of pheromones on the way to and on the way back from a food source to the nest. And then other ants who forage kind of randomly have a higher probability to go into directions where there's a higher concentration of pheromones which means that ants were already there, which creates this positive feedback loop that leads the ants in the shortest path from the food to the back home. So that's just one example. In more classical sense, these cues that are laid in the environment that were described so far were tend to be cues that uh, diffuse passively. So if it's pheromones, they kind of diffuse passively by the laws of physics and uh, just follow you know, that kind of spreading behavior. So that's kind of stigmergy in the classical sense. But what we showed uh, in the paper that we'll talk about now is the ventilation, also with the mechanical shaking and also with the aggregation behavior, is that the bees do something active to change these cues in the environment that would then be communicated to other individuals, making things more complex, but also much more interesting, at least I think so. Again, to lay out the experimental design a little bit, and mm-hmm. you know, I think one of the things that I found interesting about the way that you're kind of required to constrain some of the variables of this experiment was that you and your co-authors chose to use a particular kind of beekeeping hive, mm-hmm. the Langstroth beehive, which has this long, narrow entrance, and so you you've mm-hmm. got you've controlled for rather than looking at wild beehives with like all of these sort of different organic configurations that emerge again out of this kind of collaboration with environmental factors you've set up a situation that makes it much much easier to actually observe what's going on and compare it from hive to hive so that's just a point of to celebrate like yeah. thinking about how to design <laughs> experiments like this First of all, I just want to give a shout out to the rest of the co-authors. My my contribution here was mostly mathematical modeling. Jake Peters did all of these beautiful experiments. It ended up being really convenient that most of the commercial hives were actually helping us reduce the dimensionality of the problem from complex three-dimensional entrance sizes and shapes to something that is almost one-dimensional. A clear sense, again, of how to simplify this in a real-world setting and not just in a mathematical model. But now let's get into your model. This is cool, the way that you unpack. It's a different kind of strain, right, than a swinging swarm. You're still seeing a redistribution of labor based on the (laughs) bees making these local assessments and then moving to sort of balance out that distribution of labor. So Mm -hmm. you want to talk about some Mm -hmm. of the details of this model and then what emerged from it and then how that compared to what you were actually seeing in the observation of flesh and blood beehives. The main thing we were trying to explain is how do bees decide where to ventilate their hive? A little bit of background there is you already mentioned this really, really 
narrow one-dimensional entrance. And then usually for these commercial hives, there's also a little wooden piece in the beekeeping jargon is called the porch. And then the bees can just sit on their porch. And what they do to ventilate the hive is fan their wings. So they're really just like little fans. And then the question is, where should they stand? Where should they fan along this one-dimensional entrance? We already knew from Jake's experiments that they tend to do this in little groups. So they kind of aggregate at one position along the one-dimensional entrance and they all fan their wings together. In terms of explaining how this is achieved based on sensing local information, this is where the mathematical model came into the picture. And the idea was that we know that bees are sensitive to temperature. They can sense temperature. Above a certain threshold of temperature, above a certain value of the ambient temperature, they have a higher tendency to start fanning. So that was one ingredient that we put into our model. The second ingredient was related to opposing airflow. So imagine that you have one bee that is standing on the porch and it's fanning its wings, driving hot air from inside the hive to the colder environment. And then because of conservation of mass, there's going to be some colder air from the environment going back into the hive. But every time we have these two opposing flows, we're going to have some friction that is happening at the interface between these two opposing flows. So on one hand, we want to have you know, many bees fanning. On the other hand, we want to minimize that friction, energy loss that is coming from opposing flows. And we also want to minimize the bees sort of working against each other. If there's a happy group of bees fanning one position along the entrance, where they're not fanning is where the colder air is going to come into the hive. But then if bees start standing there and fanning, they're going to oppose that airflow. So there's going to be some energy loss there as well. So we're kind of posing this in, as an optimization problem of what would be the most optimal configuration that would allow for global airflow, but still minimize all of this energy loss. And these are the main ingredients that we placed in the mathematical model, which we I don't know how much you want to go into the details, but we basically, you know, it was too complicated to get an analytical solution, but we solved it numerically and received really similar results to what we see in the experiments. We get this group aggregation of bees that are fanning their wings together in one position along the entrance, and that helps them to create that global airflow in and out of the hive. One thing that I found curious about the factors that you're putting together in forming this model was that, as it says here in the paper, when you're talking about task threshold model, mm -hmm. when the demand for a task is large, more individual bees respond due to broad variation in task thresholds. This variation is higher in colonies with a queen, which has mated multiple times and promotes the temporal stability of thermoregulation. So what is going on here? The maturity of the queen yeah. figures into this. What, what is that? Let me try to unpack all of this. So first of all, more generally, I think it's another really nice example how noise in a natural biological system can actually be beneficial. Let me explain how that's so in these systems. What we knew from the literature is that bees have a, a distribution of threshold that trigger the fanning behavior. There's not just like one temperature value. Distribution becomes wider when there is higher genetic variability, which is comes you know to the point with the queen, what the mating history basically, and what's the genetic variability of all the worker bees. And what we showed with the model is that actually having this variability of the, the threshold point to trigger the behavior can be really beneficial and help them create these aggregations more optimally in comparison to a situation where there's really like a sharp threshold uniform for all the worker bees. The reason for this is coming from the aggregation process itself. So if you can imagine one bee that is fanning, driving hot air from the hive outside. So where this bee is standing, the temperature is going to be slightly higher. And then it's going to decrease kind of gradually as you get further away from that bee. If you just had a constant threshold that triggers the fanning, then nothing would really happen here. Every bee would just start kind of randomly, no matter where it is along the entrance, to start fanning. But then if, they, if there's some point a bee that has a slightly lower threshold, have a higher tendency to start fanning closer to the bee that is already fanning because of the temperature distribution there. So having the noise, having the variability in the threshold point is actually really helpful for this process of aggregation. 
You know, it's funny how it seems like every single conversation we have on this show gets back to the value of noise and the value of of diversity in these complex Mm -hmm. systems. And, you know, I'm reminded of a conversation I just heard with SFI Miller scholar Lawrence Gonzalez. He was on Behind the Shield podcast recently, which is like a a firefighter and emergency Mm -hmm. response show. And he was talking about the natural distribution in risk tolerance in people. You know, it's good that we have some people that are highly risk averse and some people that are risk seeking. And of course, thinking about the writing that SFI chair economist Michael Mobison has done on risk. So there seems like a loop from that back to the first paper that we discussed, which is about bees. They're all seeking a lower strain, you know? I I don't remember this being in that paper, but it seems like there were probably bees that were more likely to try and climb the column and get to an easier place and bees that were down there swinging at the bottom like, yes, this is fun, you know, (laughs) and and that we need this basically so that these swarms and hives don't kind of like seize up when all the neurons start firing at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe this is an interesting connection to the firefly stuff, but I'm getting ahead of us here mm-hmm. <laughs> just to throw one more piece on it for people that are interested in in what this means in terms of scientific research. It reminds me of the conversation that we had with James Evans. We were talking about the science of science and how big scientific ideas emerge in these gaps sort of between disciplines. They tend to be discovered by people that are crossing from one discipline to another which is inherently inefficient, right? Like to cross an inferential mm-hmm. distance between one way of, of understanding, modeling the world and a, another being used by a different domain is energetically costly, right? And so in a way, mm-hmm. I feel like your beehive ventilation work is an arrow in the quiver of the argument for interdisciplinary science. Because you're saying, listen, we need people <laughs> willing to take intellectual risks here Otherwise, our knowledge community hive would just overheat and die or something. <laughs> That's maybe a little yeah, silly. I love it. Everything you just said very much support interdisciplinary science. And if I can actually add another meta level <laughs> to that philosophical argument, I think that just to connect it to the swarm shaking experiments, I think that over there, the, the noise or the flexibility, I would think of more in the transition from phases of you know, from solid to liquid to gas. And let me bind this back to Earth. So solids and, and crystals, they're, they have a really predefined configuration. So it's very predictable, but it doesn't really allow for exploration. And that's a really important process for biological systems to actually adapt to varying uh, changing environments and, and unknown conditions. So, you know, when I think about the swarm structure, it's it's something in between a solid and a liquid. It's, uh, you know, there's still definitely some constant and strong bonds between individuals. But then, you know, as we, as it kind of melts and change shapes, it's a bit more behaving a bit more like a liquid. And I think being that transition where they can switch from these two configurations is really important for their mechanical stability, but then also for their survival. There's just one more point I want to let you unpack here before we we get into the next piece, which is you know something you mentioned in the conclusion of this paper uh, is that if the bees fanned into the nest entrance rather than out of it, they would have no information about the state of the hive. Interestingly, another cavity nesting honeybee species, Apis serrana, fans into the nest. So, you know, you just mentioned in passing that this this other honeybee species is likely using an alternative strategy. Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> like it seems to, it seems to upend yeah. everything so, that you uh, just said about how the, you know, the collective computation of the hive is actually functioning. So, what do you think is going on in these contrary situations? The mechanism, the model, the mathematical model would actually still work based on on only having the information of the temperature at the entrance. You don't really need to know what is the temperature inside and outside. From that perspective, it would work. I just think that for bees who send air outside of the hive, they have this extra piece of information where because they're driving air, they also might be able to sense what's going on 
what's the temperature inside the hive. But I have no idea why <laughs> these other species of bees do it reversely. And it, just to add to the mystery, there's some really interesting behavior in feral honeybees where when the entrance size is very small, you know, they don't just aggregate in one point along the entrance because it's so small, it doesn't really make sense. So they start switching from that strategy and intermittent fanning. So they fan for a little bit and then stop, fan for a little bit and then stop, which is really similar to what we do when we breathe, by the way. We kind of have air, we introduce airflow and then stop, introduce airflow and stop. So that there are all these wild behaviors in the natural environments that I think would be really cool to kind of explore and understand also in, in the context of this model. Just more reckless speculation. I wonder if, you know, you, you pointed to the opening at the entrance of the hive being of a different size in different species. And, I, you know, I wonder if that has any relationship to, again, the, you know, the economic discussion around scaling trust, like scaling coupling between people. You know, I'm just thinking about, I've been having a conversation on Facebook about usury and how, like, historically, my dad's side of the family is Jewish. Interest-bearing debt is something that you don't do within your own community. It's something that seems to have emerged as a way of mm -hmm. accommodating a certain amount of risk for engaging in financial transactions with people outside of a circle of trust. I wonder, again, if there's some sort of underlying pattern here in the way that you see bees operating collectively. You basically said as much that it seems like the size and shape of the entrance is a key figure in this. I would be curious to know whether this has something to do with like scaling laws, whether you see the emergence of these new collective properties as a result of the size of the hive and then the, si the size that the entrance of the hive has to be in order to accommodate a, a hive of that mm -hmm. population. Yeah, that would be really interesting to see, like, you know, to vary the, the size of the entrance and see at what point they they switch strategies and i don't know the answer to that but i think it's a really cool direction <laughs> you just published this other study led by nagoyan itsulino itsulino mankel bocek stevens and peleg right so large yes. large colorado team mostly yeah Amsterdam and, and Okinawa. Japan, Germany. So it's kind of a international, <laughs> it's, which has been really, really fun. So all the authors of, on this paper are just fantastic and it's been a collaborative effort. This piece, Flow-Mediated Olfactory Communication in Honeybee Swarms, helps answer a question that I am sure many people naively had as, as a child, which is how on earth are these bees finding their way home? <laughs> How are they communicating with one another over these great distances over the you know, so-called sight line of the dancing and like visual communication mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. getting too far ahead of ourselves and spoiling it? There's, it seems like there's some really interesting implications here about human telecommunications networks and how mm -hmm. we can structure those in a way that draws on the sort of intelligence of evolved living systems rather than designed mm -hmm. uh, technological systems. So can you talk a little bit about this piece, please? Yes. Yeah. How you use the modeling and then also the machine vision, which has led for some really interesting videos to share over or social that we'll link to in the show notes. <laughs> this is a piece I'm, I'm really proud of. It's one of my first last author's paper. So <laughs> I'm very excited about it. The question, as you already pointed out, is how do bees that are far away from the queen manage to locate her when they're actually relying on pheromones that are very volatile molecules that decay very rapidly in time and space? It was already known that, of course, bees use pheromones and they have this uh, behavior called scenting. So what they're doing is basically sticking their abdomen up, which exposes a pheromone gland, and then they fan their wings which drives airflow on top of that pheromone gland and basically distribute these pheromones in the direction of the airflow. What we found out is that when a worker bee is getting close to the queen, instead of just walking all the way to the queen, it would stop at a certain distance and scent, so amplify these pheromones, and it would do it away from the queen. 
And then another bee would do the same thing based on those amplified pheromones. And so it would stop and, and propagate them backwards and so on and so on and so on. There's this relay activation process where the, which basically allows the pheromones to travel distances that are much longer than they would be able to if it was only coming from a single bee. So that's the general process. I should probably also clarify just related to what you said before. We, we know that this is helpful on a length scale of, you know, a few meters, let's say, but bees actually forage over very large distances of you know, up to five miles, I believe is the number. They definitely have, you know, other strategies to find their way back home, path integration and visual cues and so on. But actually, one of the first things that was shown with this usage of pheromones is that when there's foraging bees exiting the hive, there's a bunch of bees sitting again on the porch and they're scenting this time. So they're creating these pheromones. And uh, there's a positive correlation between the number of scenting bees and, and the success rate of foragers to come back to the hive. So it could be that on, you know, they, they sort of find a way closer to the hive, but then these pheromones actually on the, the length scale of a few meters really guides them back to their hive. So that's kind of the biology. Uh, we are in our experiments, we basically had a, a semi-two-dimensional arena where the queen is located in one corner, and then we put all the rest of the bees at the other corner. And then we can see how they start exploring the arena and scent and inform the rest of the, the bees. And this is where the, the new computer vision code came into place. And that was solely the contribution of, of uh, Greg Stephens and uh, uh, Kesha Bozak, who guided Dumai creating this new machine learning code. And the idea was that they, using some training data that we created, they were able to create a code that would classify and find all of these scenting events. So of course, you know, for us, this was a major upgrade to us watching the videos and clicking on all of the scenting events. It allowed us to have a really large data set relatively quickly. And then the really cool thing, the really like aha moment there was when we took all of these, you know, we, we played the movie, we stopped it at a certain frame, and then we can see all the positions that the bees are scenting and in which direction they're scenting. And then if we take all of these little directions they create and integrate them into something that looks more like a global map, we saw that it really leads to the queen. So following all of these local directional cues that are coming from individual bees, bees that are trying to find the queen can follow these and it would really lead them to the position of the queen. So that was a really exciting moment. That's kind of broadly, and I'm happy to elaborate on any other points. One of the things that came out of this that I, I thought was was interesting in in Figure Two, you talk about the distance between scenting bees is invariant to bee density, suggestive that the bees have a you know a computational strategy. Thank you for bringing this up. This was really also another important point, another important piece of information we got from the experiments. So let's assume that we have a bee that is producing pheromones just you know for the sake of the argument assume that it's producing them isotropically so it's it move it spreads the same in all directions if you have another bee that is exploring the space depending on the distance of that bee from the scenting bee it's going to sense the particular concentration of pheromones depending of, of how far it is from the scenting bee the distance is directly correlated to the concentration of pheromones that a, a bee would would sense and the fact that they are actually spaced, you know, at a very particular characteristic distance from each other suggests that they might be using concentration of pheromones to position themselves. So that was, you know, one big component that we included in the computational model, which is the bees might be able to sense pheromone concentrations. And once they reach a certain threshold, then they would stop moving and start scenting themselves. So amplifying the pheromones in a certain direction. And the direction in this case we chose also to be related to the gradient of concentration of pheromones. So they would have a tendency to move the pheromones backwards towards the less informed bees. I don't know if this is a valid point, but it, it strikes me a lot as kind of akin to being on college campus and like trying to find the party. And but then <laughs> like by the time you get to the party, you're done looking for the party. You're not trying to find the busiest room in the party. 
Instead, you're calling your friends, telling them where the party is. That sounds, as long as you're not calling them over cell phones, it would have long range Ah. (laughs) connection. Then I think it's a valid analogy. (laughs) Let's say instead of a party, it's a protest and that we're using a a Bluetooth mesh network that's percolating a signal through Bluetooth. It's not just like point to point, but you actually have to, the signal has to diffuse. It seems like very, very useful information for people who are organizing rallies and and that kind of thing. There's a lot of other interesting stuff about this, but for the sake of time, I want to make sure that we get to your work on fireflies. Uh, Photinus carolinus, such a lovely name. And you were last author on a piece in Royal Society Interface on using 360 degree cameras to actually like start to come up with, to substantiate or to ground uh, all of the the models that people have tried to make about firefly synchronization in actual data. So there, there's some really cool coverage of this research that has come out in in various press publications. We'll link to in the show notes. You can see pictures of this, this like extraordinary fieldwork that you got to participate in. And so this is just uh, you know I would love to hear you talk a little bit about this piece and yeah. how your team came up with the idea to do this, how that facilitated a more rigorous quantitative mm-hmm. approach to studying firefly synchronization. Yeah, mm-hmm. Where it all started is really doing undergrad where I took some physics classes and we had dynamical systems and mostly focused on the math, but we had a really nice teacher who gave us a lot of nice examples, relatable examples for, for example, synchronization. And I, I still, to this day, remember the example of fireflies and how they synchronize their flashes. So really, I would say, kind of grew up on these ideas that fireflies are a landmark example of synchronization in nature. And they correlate that this behavior can be explained by a very wide, rich set of mathematical models that are generally referred to as the Kuramoto model, where uh, individual agents are considered to be oscillators that perform some periodic function. And then there is some coupling between pairs of agents that leads them to synchronize their phases in the periodic process. That's kind of generally. I guess when I was kind of thinking about starting my own lab and whether I want to write in my research statement and all these sort of things, I also um, watched a lot of nature documentaries, which is something that I try to do all the time, <laughs> whenever I have time. And uh, so I came across, you know, some some of beautiful like, uh, movies of fireflies. And I started thinking about, you know, all of these mathematical models and reading a little bit more deeply into the literature, turns out that there was really very little quantitative data on firefly flashes. And there's many good reasons for that. Most of the research was published a couple of 10 or 20 years ago, where when cameras and, and technology equipment was made it really hard to record large swarms of fireflies. They had to be really close to the cameras in order to be captured. And also the firefly uh, synchronization behavior is really rare. So you have to be there in the right place at the right time. Fireflies have this interesting life cycle where they are spending their their adults who flash what I think people usually think about when they think about flashing fireflies. So they're adults for about two weeks out of the year. And then the rest of the year, they're, you know, kind of underground and and waiting for spring again. Even within these two weeks, they only flash for a few hours every night. So it's really kind of a race against time to try to capture their behavior. So so all I'm saying is that it's been kind of difficult to capture this, uh, this data. And somebody who is insistent enough to actually, you know, really care about this and uh, go out to the field. So I, we actually drove to the field site in Tennessee last year and the previous year for a couple of weeks and managed to actually capture some quantitative data about um, uh, swarms of fireflies. Just to set this up in people's mind's eye, what we're talking about is setting up multiple 360 GoPros so that you get a stereoscopic view, yes. two 360 panoramas that then allow you to correlate things in 3D. Exactly. In these mathematical models, the distance between the flashing fireflies can be really important. So we really wanted to have this 3D representation of fireflies. 
And the idea for the 360 cameras was actually from a very talented postdoc I have in my lab, Rafael Safati, who came up with this idea, which is really cool because when we position these 360 cameras, we really get a nice view of the swarm from inside the swarm, almost like we're you know a single firefly inside the swarm. We can see what's going on around in comparison to having external cameras. Again, to contrast this to previous work that's been done on this, you, you mentioned in this paper that previous measurements by Copeland and Moisef describe similar intermittent or discontinuous synchronicity, but your observations were different than theirs. They looked at it as sort of like a square wave where it seemed mm-hmm. to them group f- flashing started and s- stopped abruptly, but you actually measured a kind of like a, a gradation into and out of synchrony, mm-hmm. which seems like something you might only notice if you're wa- being able to, as you just said, watch the entire thing at once. Then also mm-hmm. there's a piece in this study on flight and how these are not just static points that are coordinating with each other, but they're all changing their distance from each other in this cloud. So each one is this point that's moving around inside the swarm. And if I'm to understand this correctly, that's like one of the mechanisms behind the sort of slop that you see as, as the system is moving in and out of synchrony, right? That it's like jostling inside. So there's definitely some mixing coming from the movement of the fireflies. We don't fully understand it yet. It seems to be like this mixing is actually, it doesn't have a directionality. So the fireflies are flying. And if you look at the collection of flight trajectories, there isn't a particular direction in which they all tend to move to. This is probably coming from a search behavior because what's happening is that the males are the ones that are flying and and flashing in synchrony. And they are, the reason for synchronization in the first place is for mating purposes. So they're looking for females who tend to be closer to the ground and more stationary. But the idea of mixing here is is very intriguing, you know, in terms of also connecting these to mathematical models. It's also worth mentioning, I think, in this paper for highly analytical geometry nerds that you and your team ran into a bit of a challenge, right? Which is that you're filming this in, in the photospheres that you get from these cameras. It's like the same thing you're dealing with map projections. You have to take these spheres and then flatten them and then correlate that. So can you talk a little bit about the artifacts of this and how your team addressed this potential source of error in the the three-dimensional models you were building of these swarms? The idea of 3D reconstruction, so estimating depth from stereo vision, is not new and it has been solved many times. But we had this, we are basically working with a periodic image, right, on both rotation angles. So we, we had to take this into account and adjust all the mathematical formulation to do the depth estimation. And there's, of course, you know, a little bit of uh, caveats when you are right underneath the camera or something like this. But otherwise, it's really just, uh, you can really think about it as a stereo 3D reconstruction, just with a, a more, a wider field of view. You took this and then you compared what you were observing in the wild to, again, this is like one of these, like <laughs> you get to mess with bugs and mess with their heads for a living, which is just amusing to me for some reason, I guess. <laughs> You know, it's, they're distant <laughs> enough. The section where you're isolating male fireflies and you're throwing them into tents and you're measuring what one does in isolation and then you're you're controlling it, you're adding them incrementally. And this is another instance where you see a transition as the number of fireflies goes up. What did you see here? It seems like this is another instance of somewhat similar dynamics to what we're seeing in bee coordination. Yeah, you're right. It's all phase transitions. You're right. Thank you for (laughs) finding a connecting theme. It's always hard for me to do, actually, from my own research. But you're right. There's definitely a phase transition here. The reason we worked with the tents in the first place is that the swarm is really big. So it spans miles over miles. We've never really seen the, the end of this swarm. So we can really just record a small fraction of it. We really want to have a situation where we know how many fireflies we have and what is their field of view and and what they are perceiving. And that was a bit harder to do, of course, uh, outside in the natural environment. So for that, we just brought uh, dark tents that that served as a controlled environment where we could 
isolate a few fireflies from the swarm and bring them into this controlled environment. I guess the, the really surprising thing that we found is that as we decrease the number of fireflies that we have in that isolated environment, the synchronization becomes less well-formed to the point where we have individual fireflies there's almost nothing periodic about the way that they flash. So there, if you look at the time between the start of, of a flash burst, then it spans a really wide distribution. And that's surprising because, again, as I mentioned, I kind of grew up on these beautiful ideas and, and mathematical models that assume that an individual building block in these agent-based models also behave like an oscillator, also performs a periodic function when it's uh, just by itself, isolated from the swarm. And we saw that this is not exactly what the fireflies are doing. You know, this kind of reminds me of the conversation around neurodiversity. You know, I have a friend from college who used to say, no man is an island, but some are very long peninsulas. <laughs> and, you know, just this this notion that, again, you know, like th there's, uh, to look at it in a more of a, a, a social scale, SFI prides itself on having distance enough from the larger academic environment and staying small enough that it can be weird. Mm -hmm. This comports with the experience that I remember as a child of seeing these beautiful swarms of synchronized fireflies, catching one in a jar, and then being completely unable to predict when it's going to, <laughs> to flash. Oh my God. I'm thinking about this now also in terms of the effects of remote work on yeah. professional existence. And just how weird and divergent people get mm -hmm. when we're isolated from one another and we're just sort of allowed to, you know, this is actually, you know, obviously this is like one of the fundamentals of science as it's practiced in a social context, right? Which is that we keep each other in check. Mm -hmm. We were mm -hmm. queuing off of each other. We're syncing up in ways that we don't when we go camping. And I mean, arguably that's really good for some reasons. So this is where we get into this thing about, you see this in the experiment. You saw in your controls that there were early flashers, mobile mm -hmm. flashers, immobile flashers. And again, I'm kind of thinking about that natural variation in the honeybees mm -hmm. and the variation in risk tolerance and, and all of that. So it just it's just interesting how even here in a system where it seems like there's much more regimented coordination between members of this collective that you still see this uh, sort of emergence of different personality types <laughs> and like early adopters the ones that like hang out and stay put. Yes, I just thought it was a really interesting way to put the behavior of the fireflies in isolation. And I can definitely relate to, you know, becoming weirder <laughs> in isolation. I mean, maybe this seems like the, the right place to talk about the last piece that you sent me, which again, this is, you know, you're the last author on a piece with Raphael Sarfati mm -hmm. and uh, Julie Hayes. So this mm -hmm. is like a little subset of that research team continuing investigation of this phenomenon, the relationship between the density and the correlation of fireflies. One of the things that comes out of this is just the importance of the environment in, in shaping self-organization and collective behavior, which I think has been a strain mm -hmm. through the entire conversation. But I would love to just invite some remarks on this piece and, and, and how this piece sort of uh, deepens and expands on the insights of the, the mm -hmm. prior one. This piece is just focusing on the fireflies outside in the forest in their natural environment. And there is something that we were able to capture a little bit with our cameras. It's, of course, much more, it's just amazing to be there and see it live. So there is this wave of the onset of a burst that propagates throughout the entire forest. And you can really see it coming towards you in the forest, and it's really magnificent. We were able to direct our cameras in, in the direction that actually captured some of these propagating waves and also get some statistics on, on other directions. This is, again, where quantitative data becomes really useful. We are not the first one to discover this. This has been discovered before. But the tool that we have today, the researchers did before, is that one researcher stood 100 meters away from the other researcher and then they just shouted whenever the wave got to their point and they kind of measured it this way but now we're all doing the best we can do in the given technology that we have and now we can actually capture and do the 3d reconstruction of these propagating waves 
propagating waves, of course, um, tells us something about the mechanisms of synchronization and how information is is transferred between individuals. So it's a, a very interesting and important quantity to have. What we found out in this paper is that the speed of the wave that is propagating is order of magnitude faster than the speed of in which individuals are flying. So this has to come with from some interactions between individuals and triggering of uh, the flashing behavior based on the flashings of other individuals. Another important thing that we found out is that um, this all of this synchronization and wave propagation occurs inside very dense vegetation. So there's trees and there's bushes and the fireflies just kind of move around them. And we were able to capture with the 360 cameras the breaking of symmetry in terms of the directionality. So if you put them in different points, there's going to be certain directions in which we will see uh, more flashes in comparison to other directions. And that's really just coming from the visual occlusion that is there in the environment. This paper is really just highlighting the importance of considering the environment and the connectivity of the network of interactions, how it affects that, that network uh, when thinking about the synchronization of the entire swarm. And the conclusion to this piece, talking about the resultant mixture of short range and, and long range interactions, you make a, an interesting point here, which I think we, we just spoke to really, which was that this self-organization allows for the possibility of an individual to position itself to be more or less connected by flying higher from the ground, lower to the ground, they have some ability to modify the line of sight mm -hmm. or like the wavelength. If I'm getting this right, this kind of reminds me of, again, diversity within various societies, various animal species, a spy hopping behavior in, in whales maybe might be an example, or the loner weirdos that wander <laughs> off. You would ask yourself, gosh, you know, if being a social organism like a, a chimpanzee is so valuable, why do you have these individuals that wander off? Mm -hmm. Again, it speaks to the way that variation within a given population allows for cohesion. Mm -hmm. Gosh, you know, I mean, the fact that this is all occurring within a mating context, mm -hmm. it's funny because you think, yeah, if people are competing for mates, why would they copy each other? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Let me just throw out like a teaser that, uh, first of all, in the first paper that came out on the fireflies, we did find out that there is, even though the fireflies are synchronizing their flashes, there's actually importance to the movement. So they're kind of drawing a flash as they move, and that, that kind of shape actually has some influence on the synchronization of the entire swarm. Could also be, this is just speculation, but could also have some influence also on what not just the males are perceiving, but maybe what also the females are perceiving. It's a really interesting question of how do you, as a male firefly, distinguish yourself from the rest of the swarm while still getting the attention of the females that we already know from the literature that they are responding to more punctual swarms. So it's a very hard problem to solve. And uh, this is kind of a future direction that we're taking this uh, in my lab. It stands to reason, I think, that answering this question will help us or could help us understand how to allocate science funding a little bit more effectively, <laughs> you know, to like to know kind oh, of how, I see. Like how to distribute money to, you know, these sort of large projects that are occurring within a given paradigm. And then like mm -hmm. how much money we as a society should consider giving to the crazy ones that like wander off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if it was up to me, it would be just the crazy ones, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> but then you don't get any synchrony, right? True. True. <laughs> In closing, what would you as someone who has a clear and infectious enthusiasm for this world and these ideas and research methods, what would you suggest to people that are, are looking to get more involved in the study of collective behavior or the, you know, the properties of, of complex systems? I mean, obviously like join your lab, right? Yeah, joining my lab or taking some of the nice courses that SFI is offering. That would be my first guess. Besides this, I would recommend being in nature, observing these animals in real life, 
or watching nature documentaries if you can't do that reading popular science books has been really major inspiration for me it's like discovering whole new worlds you know with the, all these weird animals and weird behaviors that they are that they have and kind of that always brings a question of like why are they doing that and what happens if you tweak the behavior slightly in that way so that's kind of what i recommend people nature movies <laughs> that seems like a fabulous place to to ground this in something <laughs> a little a little concrete right like get outside mm -hmm. folks yeah <laughs> Yeah. All right. This has been an absolute pleasure. Any any final comments before we wrap this? Thank you so much. Again, it's such an honor to be on the show and I really enjoy it. So I uh, also recommend to the rest of the listeners to check out the rest of the episodes. <laughs> That's it. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely an honor to speak with you today. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.